The Eisenhower Memorial Tunnel, about 60 miles west of Denver on Interstate 70, sits at 11,013 feet at the East Portal and 11,158 feet at the West Portal. The tunnel traverses through the Continental Divide at an average elevation of 11,112 feet. When initially opened in the 1970s, the tunnel was not only the highest vehicle tunnel in the U.S., but it was also the highest in the world. This facility lies entirely within the Arapaho National Forest and is divided by two counties, Clear Creek County at the East Portal and Summit County at the West Portal. The tunnel and the Continental Divide also separates two watersheds, the Clear Creek Watershed on the east and the Straight Creek Watershed to the west. And it's these unusual elements that make the Eisenhower Tunnel Projects one of the most ambitious undertakings of Colorado's history. So join me as we discover the highest vehicle tunnel in America. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. Before the construction of the tunnels and Interstate 70, vehicles crossed the Continental Divide by driving over Loveland Pass, 11,922 feet on Highway 6, a winding, two-laned highway that could take more than an hour to navigate. In 1956, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act, which authorized the federally funded construction of an interstate highway system in the United States. The original highway planners had no intention of constructing an interstate through the formidable Colorado Rockies, which many believed would be too expensive and too complicated. However, Colorado Governor Edwin C. or Big Ed Johnson and members of the state's congressional delegation lobbied federal officials to extend Interstate 70 through the Rocky Mountains. Johnson and his supporters argued that the interstate would pay for itself through increased commerce especially money from tourists. So eventually, the federal government agreed to extend the interstate through Colorado and pay 90% of the construction costs. The state was responsible for the remaining 10%. Construction on the tunnels beneath the Continental Divide proved difficult, expensive, and dangerous. Digging on the first tunnel started in March of 1968, intended to open in three years. However, the engineers and construction workers quickly discovered that the project would be more complex than initially planned. Harsh winters made for short work years outside the tunnel. Not to mention, the men and equipment did not work well at the high altitude. Inside the tunnel, miners discovered weak rock layers the engineers had not anticipated, and the mountain could not support itself once certain sections had been dug through. With ingenuity, however, the crews devised a way to bore through the tunnel without triggering a collapse, and the tunnel continued to inch deeper into the mountain. Geological studies showed that bedrock in the tunnel area consists of 75% granite, 25% gneiss, and schist. There are faults and shear zones as well as solid bedrock. In the pilot bore, 26.5% of its length was in a self-supporting rock. 73.5% required supports in varying degrees, and the total footage of what tunnelers called bad rock was 820 feet. Because the location was the westbound bore lines between 115 and 230 feet to the north, rock conditions did not precisely duplicate those 
of the pilot tunnel. The westbound tunnel generally runs east and west and curves midway into the mountain. The twin tunnel's second or eastbound bore was later constructed in a more or less straight line. Center line to center line, the twin tunnels are 115 feet apart at the east ventilation building entrance, 120 at the west ventilation building entrance, and some 230 feet at the widest point of separation under the mountain. Now, in addition to the grueling conditions of construction, there were also some very unusual events that unfolded. On Friday, October the 2nd, 1970, during the tunnel construction, workers constructing the tunnel were among the first on the scene of a plane crash that had occurred less than two miles northeast of the East Portal. One of two charter aircraft carrying a college football team crashed just north of the highway. Of the 40 passengers and crew on board, only nine survived. The team was on its way to a game. The plane carrying the team's starters departed Denver and traveled a poorly planned scenic route. The other plane carrying reserve players followed the original path and landed safely. Among the project's large workforce, Janet Bonema deserves special attention. You see, the Colorado Highway Department mistakenly hired her, a highway engineer with a degree from the University of Colorado, because they believed they were hiring a well-qualified Mr. Bonema. Anyhow, when Miss Bonema arrived on the job, she was not allowed to enter the tunnels, even though it was her job to do so as an engineering technician. She was kept outside the tunnels and at a desk because construction workers believed having a woman in the tunnels would jinx the worksite. This taboo concern was so widely accepted that on the day Bonema finally entered the tunnels, surrounded by reporters, most of the work crew actually walked out of the tunnel, some of whom never reached return to their job. The majority of the staff, however, returned to work the next day, and Miss Bonema continued to work in the tunnels, often dressed in loosely fitting coveralls so no one could tell her identity. Apparently, many tunnel workers opposed women working on the site, stating a superstition that having females on site was terrible luck. As it turns out, Miss Bonema was encouraged by an equity law recently passed in the state, so she filed a lawsuit against the Colorado Department of Transportation and and actually won. After five years of construction, the first tunnel opened for highway traffic on March the 8th, 1973. The eastbound tunnel opened for traffic six years later, on December the 21st, 1979. When it opened, the Eisenhower-Johnson Memorial Tunnel was the highest mountain tunnel in the world. It should be noted that several train tunnels in Asia have since surpassed it, but it does remain the highest vehicle tunnel in the world and the highest point in the U.S. interstate highway system. Ultimately, this project went far over budget, totaling more than $257 million by the time both tunnels were finished, with historians pointing out that this amount was equal to the original estimate of the entire stretch of Interstate 70 from Denver to the Utah state line. More than 1,000 men and women worked six days a week year-round to complete the tunnels. Despite safety precautions, three people lost their lives constructing the first bore of the tunnel and four on the second. Many others suffered amputations, surgeries, and various other work-related injuries. However, compared to the roadways of the past, 
The tunnels themselves are phenomenally safe. Not a single death in 40 years of operation. This is partly because the facility and its staff are evolving to keep pace with increased traffic demand and vehicle risks. For example, the tunnels have their own war room, where staff monitors toxic gas and car exhausts, like carbon monoxide, which is crucial as these gases can accumulate quickly within a tunnel. Therefore, tunnel air is circulated through ducts stashed above the road. These ducts are nearly as tall and wide as the road itself. On opening day, a ceremony was held inside the tunnel's east portal in freezing conditions with occasional flurries. Members of the Eisenhower family had been invited but did not attend. Governor Love called the tunnel, quote, a tremendous accomplishment for Colorado. But you'll never believe what happened to the first person who drove through the tunnel. You see, they received a summons for trespassing. The historic moment occurred in late 1972 when a driver who had been drinking decided that he, not Governor Love, should have the honor of being the first person to drive through the tunnel. So he zoomed past a sign that prohibited traffic and then passed through a foot deep of mining muck or mud. When he emerged, his car was covered in silt. The judge dismissed the charge because the signs prohibiting traffic at the tunnel entrance weren't adequate. Now from the outside, face to face, the ventilation buildings stand at a distance of 8,941 feet from one another. Of this distance, there are 7,789 feet of rock tunneling, 1,152 feet of ventilation slash portal structures, and cut and cover sections at the east and west ends, meaning that there is far more to these tunnels, or complex even, than meets the eye. In fact, while the Eisenhower Tunnel was primarily intended as a transportation tunnel, it also served as a water tunnel for water diversions from the western side of the Continental Divide to the eastern side. Water from the Straight Creek watershed and the seepage entering the tunnel is discharged into Clear Creek for use by a local brewing company. Typically, the tunnel delivers over 300 acre feet of water per year. The tunnels are complex to run. In the multi-story portals on both ends of the tunnel, about 40 employees who work shifts at all hours run utilities that include the ventilation system, a wastewater treatment plant, and minor electrical substations. This, of course, is to power the 28 gargantuan intake and exhaust fans. In the control room, which has a mix of modern and, let's say, Apollo-era equipment, employees monitor live video feeds of the tunnels and crucial points along the I-70 mountain corridor for any trouble. The fire crews stand by and are ready to respond in any emergency situation. These firefighters have been aided by a $22 million in-tunnel fire suspension system installed back in 2015, basically adding sprinklers. The giant fans also help clear the air quickly during a tunnel fire. The tunnel is staffed 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, to provide a safe and adequate service to the motoring public. Now, believe it or not, at one time, a tram car was suspended from the wall. This was a gasoline-powered unit that could travel through the length of the tunnel, carrying an attendant. An emergency power system is also in place to use as an emergency backup in case the commercial source of electricity is ever interrupted. 
Now, although the Eisenhower Tunnel has modern equipment, the old systems are beginning to decline from wear and tear. Just as the building of the Eisenhower Tunnel required ingenuity, CDOT now faces a modern challenge. 48 years after the first tunnel bore opened, some emerging repairs are needed, including replacing the leaky main water lines beneath the roadway's pavement, which will most certainly require a creative, if not expensive, solution. Beyond that, there are three places of particular concern where groundwater is seeping through the porous concrete membrane that lines the tunnel pipes are set up on the wall to funnel the water into a drainage system, but it sometimes pools and freezes in the corridor. Or perhaps even more concerning is that some water actually flows down into the vehicle tunnels, staining the wall panels, to the point that it's pushed some panels outwards by several inches during freezing conditions. Luckily, one near-term project on the repair list calls for injecting grout to fill voids into the fractured rock and soil around the tunnel. It's also agreed to build a bike path along the interstate pass. The work and sacrifice of these men and women made commuting from the front range to the western slope much more accessible and helped increase access to the high country. A drive through the tunnels from one side of the Continental Divide takes about five minutes, while a trip over Loveland Pass can still take more than an hour. This shorter and much safer commute has strengthened commercial ties. It's boosted the economy of many mountain towns and just beckons skiers, snowboarders, and anyone wishing to visit or live in the Colorado Rocky Mountains. And I think this is a beautiful notion as tourism was upon one of the official justifications of building what was once the highest tunnel in the world. Now, if you love tunnels, I've got great news for you, as we have an entire playlist dedicated to that topic. And for our channel members, those of you who generously clicked join, I just visited the longest narrow gauge train tunnel in all of Europe. And with that, this is Ryan Sokash signing off.